Please remain standing for our reading of scripture this morning, which comes to us out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We read verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, the words of Paul's letter to Timothy. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as scripture is read, as word is proclaimed, help us hear with joy what you say to us this day in your name. Amen. Today we continue a worship series on stewardship entitled Defying Gravity, Breaking Free from the Culture of More. And it is all about learning uh, about how uh, generosity um, is at the forefront of the minds of Christians or should be and how we can be a more generous people in a world where generosity is not at the forefront of society. And of course, this is our time of the year every year where we're talking about money in church. And so you, uh, you get uh, this today and then we will tie it up next week with our Commitment Sunday. But today, we're going, to talk, uh, we're going to talk about being tethered to God. But I want to start out with a story about one of the greatest gravity-defying events of all time. It is called the Ortigue Prize. Any historical buffs familiar with the Ortigue Prize? It was a $25,000 reward offered in the 1920s by hotel operator Raymond Ortigue to the first person who could fly across the Atlantic Ocean between New York and Paris. Starting to sound a little bit more familiar now? I want to introduce you to three of the competitors in this prize. The first one was a World War I French flying ace whose name was René Fonck. F-O-N-C-K, <coughs> Fonck. You've got to add that at the end, otherwise it don't work. So Fonck was... Uh, Quite a character, and his plane was about as expansive as his personality was. He wanted to arrive in his homeland of Paris in style and fancy, and so he had three others in his crew, so a total of four. The interior of the plane was more like a living room of a chateau instead of the fuselage of an aircraft. There were heavy chairs, mahogany tables, a sofa that can be converted into a bed. Funk took everything and he even brought a sink. He brought cases of wine and champagne. He loaded up gifts for his friends. Before takeoff, he had a local hotel deliver a hot takeoff meal to the aircraft, which included clam chowder, terrapin, roast duck, and turkey. And to keep it all warm, he had a specific oven, a cabinet in, installed in the aircraft, insulated. His plane was designed to carry no more than 20,000 pounds, but loaded down, it weighed in at a whopping 28,000 pounds. Something should have told him that it was wrong 
whenever they had to retrofit another wheel just to get it to roll to the runway. So do you think he actually got up in the air? No. He never made it into the air. Rene Funk. Everybody say, there you go. The second participant was millionaire Charles Levine. Now, Charles Levine financed out of his own pocket a team that may have actually had the best chance to win the prize and had the most qualified components. Uh, he had a, a great plane with a wonderful crew, but they never functioned as a team from the get-go. The two pilots he hired, their names were uh, Chamberlain and Bertrand, they fought over everything from the flight plan to the layout of the aircraft to who would sit where in the cockpit. And the team never made it onto the runway because of a contract payout dispute. Wouldn't you know it? The team that couldn't get along couldn't get along on the money issue. So Levine's team never even made it into the cockpit. Now the third and final participant. Anybody want to take a crack at guessing who he is? Say it again. Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh desperately wanted to be the first person to fly from New York to Paris and claim that prize. He was personally involved in every aspect of the trip. He uh, spent time in the factory, even with his aircraft, to make sure that they built it to specifications that kept it really simple. The Spirit of St. Louis had only one engine. It uh, had uh, one seat for one pilot to save weight. Lindbergh was said to have even famously trimmed off the excess paper around his navigational charts in order to conserve weight. There were no luxuries. He didn't even have a forward windshield on the aircraft. And all that he used to navigate was the side windows and a small periscope to see what was in front of him. And the story, as they say is history. Lindbergh landed near Paris on May 21st, 1927, a full 33 and a half hours after taking off from New York. In those days, as you can imagine, a flight from New York to Paris did not happen by accident. It took careful and strategic planning and intentionality. Here's what I want us to get out of this story of the Ortigue Prize today. Generosity does not happen by accident. It takes careful and strategic and intentional planning. And it happens by design. We learned last week that, that a whopping 45% of U.S. citizens give no money to any charitable organizations of any kind. And we can be certain that many wish that they had done so or many wish that they could give and hope to be able to give or hope to be able to be generous in the future. And, and, and the issue that we run into is that we are like the competitors in the Ortigue Prize. We are all different. 
Did, did ownership of all these items really equate... Uh, some of us are, 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 like, are like René Funk. So weighed down by, by the gravity of our possessions that, that we are unable to experience the freedom of generosity. Some couples, some families, even maybe like Charles Levine and company, they have competing financial goals and, and, and conflicting personal values and, and, and lack basic communication skills amongst each other, especially when the topic is money. How many of, of us like to avoid that topic in family conversations? <laughs> What's the, the three things to never talk about at the dinner table? Politics, money, and LSU football. At least at my table. They're all Arkansas people. <laughs> Folks will never break free from the culture of more when we have the mentalities of Funk and Levine. If we want our life journey to be a generous one, we need to start planning like Lindbergh planned. Generosity happens by design. In order to make a real contribution with time or with, with, with gifts, in order, in order to make a, a, a real uh, uh, stake in what we want our generosity to look like, we need to think about what we want to accomplish. We need to plan a strategy that places our financial and time allocations into that plan and we need to be vested in it and then we need to muster up the courage to actually act on that plan. How many of us write down good ideas and then when it's time to act, we back out? <laughs> I'm very guilty of that one. Just as Lindbergh did not count on good fortune and plan for worst case scenario in his flight, we must have a clear plan of action to be generous and we can actually take steps, specific steps, that we're going to talk about today to design and to plan for generosity. The first one, as we talked about a little bit last week, and your challenge last week was, was to download or take the uh, financial planning worksheet and to create a budget if you hadn't done that before. And so number one is talking about budgets. Budgets remind us that all of our finances matter to God. If faith is truly central to our lives, we must begin with a portion of our income that we plan to invest in the work of God's kingdom. And if we do not plan this first, then we may end up only giving God the leftovers if there are any. And as we all know, by the time that we pay all the other bills and as we get to the end of the month, sometimes leftovers have a way of disappearing, especially out of our checking accounts. Folks, hear this today. Discipleship cannot begin after the spending ends. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Discipleship cannot begin after the spending ends. If negotiating finances is like the ropes course 
in the video, then a budget is like the carabiner that clips to the life-saving line. The metal clip allows us to engage and to disengage as needed. A budget keeps us safely attached during our gravity-defying journey. While others are grounded, we are able to move with confidence across one element to the other towards our financial goals. When we meet the basic needs of life, our journey, our money, is used in ways that are in concert with God's will. And that movement from one element to the other seems simpler and simpler at times. We defy the financial gravity that pulls us and we're set free from the culture of more. Because we know even if we do fall off of the element, we have a lifeline that will catch us and prevent us from following. Using a budget will enable us to look at the level of spending that is pleasing to God in each area so that way we can balance our resources accordingly. Generosity does not happen by accident. It can happen, however, when we become serious about being good stewards of our income and make appropriate allocations in every aspect of our financial life. We gain that ability when we clip our lives to the safety line of a budget. All right, this is not finance, so I'll leave it at that. Number two, live, live simple. Every year, countries the globe end up rocks and, and payloads into outer space. Missions leaves something behind that orbits around the earth and pieces at least the size of a marble. At the time of this article, numbered well over 500,000 in number in outer space, and all of them traveling at well over 17,500 miles per hour. I'm sure the number is higher now since the writing of the article for this. But even tiny bits of paint from these pieces of space junk moving at that speed can cause significant damage. Not only do our stored possessions then take up space, but they often give us a sense of regret as we wonder what mission were we on when we uh, acquired or when these items came into our lives? Have you ever pulled an item out and been like, what was I thinking when I bought this? <laughs> or how many of us uh, over the years have acquired things from others and, and said, why did I keep this so long? <laughs> you ever been there? You know, it could be anything from the exercise bike in the corner that fortunately I recently started using again instead of it collecting clothing, all the way to that collection of Happy Meal toys that we hope will one day be of high value. <laughs> but not used for years, items can maintain the weight of their gravity on our lives. 
This is a life of complexity and not simplicity in which we must constantly adjust to keep from bumping into all of the stuff that comprises our lives. So the question is this. Did ownership of any of these items ever equate to a better life? To a good life? Well, yeah. Sometimes it does, doesn't it? I mean, that, sometimes stuff is fun. But here's what we learn. I'm sure this is not news to any of us. Stuff doesn't last forever. Consumption has consequences. A whole industry (laughs) in our country is based on the consumption of Americans. Look this up. There's a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And what they do is they go around picking up other people's trash and junk that they throw away. And they make a business out of it. There's companies like this all over the place. Companies based on people's consumption. If we really want to live within our means, we must think about what it looks like to live simply. What was Lindbergh's strategy? I mean, the man trimmed paper around his charts to keep it simple. The principle of simplicity is the single most effective tool that can be employed by people who want to escape the financial gravity of our culture. In moving houses, we try to get rid of a bunch of stuff every time we move. And, and, and what I've noticed is this. The more stuff we get rid of after one move, the more stuff we acquire at the new place. Of course, it didn't help that we had a kid between one move to the other. <laughs> but here's what I noticed. And actually, we did some closet clean-out yesterday again, and I noticed it yet again, and Kate even mentioned it out loud. There's a sense of relief and there's a sense that comes over you whenever you get rid of old stuff that weighs you down, that just makes you go, ah, that felt good. Can anybody relate? Gravity to fires. See simplicity as freedom. From the pressures of debt, freedom from the pressures of clutter, freedom from the complexity of having more than one needs. I still have more than I need in my closet, but I'm working on that. And what we learned is this, too. It's less about rules and guidelines, and it's more about discovering what brings us enjoyment. and then weeding out everything else. Find what brings joy and then order your life around that. And then it becomes easier to get rid of the old things that hold and weigh us down. Simplicity allows us to drop 
obscure pursuits and expenses, freeing us up to pursue what really matters to us in life. In the process, thoughts of, uh, of what we once longed for, uh, uh, what we long to possess, become crowded out and, and, and helping us overcome sins related to financial gravity and, and things like greed and, and covetousness and, and those things and to say I want to keep up with Joneses down the street and if I don't then I, my life doesn't matter and we could go on and on but what we learn is whenever we develop a life of simplicity train our thoughts towards that those thoughts of having to keep up with the, jo- the Joneses fade away and the life of simplicity replaces it in the days of old, before the invention of the GPS and before other uh, navigational uh, systems, sailors would set their course by what? The stars. They would set their course by the stars. But, but here's what they discovered. And I'm probably not telling you something you didn't know. You can't navigate using a multiplicity of constellations. You have to find one specific star as your starting point. Everybody know what that star is called? The North Star. We can't say we want to sail east by northeast to Gemini and turn right by the McDonald's and go right towards uh, Leo. I mean, we have to find the North Star, set our course by that. That one star will guide our journeys to the destination that we seek. And friends, our North Star is Jesus Christ. His vision of God's kingdom as an experience of love, as an experience of compassion, as an experience of justice is the one thing that we are called to pursue. Jesus talked about this in our scripture today that we hear from from, uh, Paul to Timothy. The principle of simplicity which leads people to see the difference between needs and wants enables us to avoid serving well. Simplicity helps us to be content with what we have. No longer do we feel a need to have newer and better. If we have Jesus as our true north, we will live generous lives wherever we may go. Yes, we'll still get those, those, those feelings of one and desire in the back of our head, and Satan will always say, oh, but you need this. And we'll be tempted to say, but I was so good and I need that. But then we will be reined back in by the life of simplicity. If we see, if friends call and ask to talk, we, 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 we will make time. If we hear of a way to bless others in our community, then, then we will find a way to do it. If we see people who are hungry, then we will buy them food. If we don't have Christ as our true north, then every shiny star that we see will redirect our course for new waters. And every time we find a new star, we will try to go and navigate in a different direction. I don't know about you, but I find whenever I try to navigate by anything but north, I just wind up going in circles. Anybody else experience that? Jesus 
is our true north. You know, it can be so easy to just be pulled off course. And maybe that's what Paul meant when he, when he was writing to Timothy. Tell people who are rich at this time, he says, not to become egotistical. I love that word more than the one we have called haughty. I like that word. He says, Don't, tell them not to be egotistical, not to place their hope in their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. When we put our hope in God and make Jesus our North Star, we count our blessings and see how God has provided for us in so many ways. And I don't know about you, but whenever I start counting the ways that God has blessed, I start losing count. <laughs> what a blessing it is to lose count of the blessings. Soon the allure of more and better loses its appeal. We begin to seek other goals and our, our, our lives take a different turn and it's no more about, about the, 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 the major things of this world we have as our wants but we start to focus on the things that God would have us focus on. Living simply enables us to focus on Paul's advice to Timothy. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good things that they do, to be generous and to share with others. And finally, the last one is set goals for generosity. One practice that enables people to make the journey of generosity each year is to set numerical goals for the good they hope to do with their time and their money for the coming year. They pray about, about uh, God's calling in their lives. They consider what activities bring joy to God and that uh, is also uniquely brings joy to them. What can we do that's pleasing to God but also we ourselves find excitement and joy within it. And then we find ways to participate. As these activities are discerned, financial goals for giving are projected for their annual giving. When we are generous, sisters and brothers, we are not doing things for God so much as we are becoming a part of what God is doing in the world. Did you catch that? When we are generous, we are not doing things for God so much as we are becoming a part of what God is doing in this world. This is what our mission is. Like Lindbergh, we know what we are about, and nothing, not even the edges of navigational charts, are going to get in our way. This is why it is important to begin the year with financial goals of what we hope to contribute to the ministries, to the organizations and projects to which God is calling us to that year. You know, it's amazing what we can do at any income level when we set goals for generosity in our lives and order our lives accordingly. Inevitably, somebody is going to say, well, I can't do that. I can't afford that. If that is how we feel, then we need to set a generosity goal and get serious about our life and about our journeys. And I'm not saying, and nobody ever said, and if any church ever tells you this, then find a different church. Nobody ever says, you've got to change the way that you're doing things this very second and come set it right here and call it good. Folks, 
It takes time and effort and intentionality to develop an attitude of generosity, and it will not change overnight. (laughs) Nobody's expecting that. Nobody will ever expect that. And I certainly will never ask anybody of that. But there's one thing that we can do, and we can covenant to do it together. We can go on the journey of generosity together as one body, as the church. Paul talks about the outcome of generosity. He says, when they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. Paul's biggest worry is that if you and I are not careful, then we will settle for a life that is held down by the gravity of our culture. We will miss the abundant life promised to us in Christ. In in our heart of hearts, we don't want an ordinary life. Generosity is the pathway to extraordinary. We can defy gravity and cross the great distance from committed consumer to generous steward if that is our goal today. And a plan for that journey to get from one end to the other, no matter how big the gap, that is how we do it. And that is the gospel message. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.